Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and I'm joined, as I often am, by my colleague Peter Kadzis. Peter, hello. Howdy. A little bit later in this episode, Peter and I are going to be talking with Jennifer Smith of the Dorchester Reporter and with Molly Boygan, our WGBH News colleague, about this strange zombie house at 97 Mount Ida Road in Dorchester that they've both been covering. It's a case that raises questions about why, even in an overheated housing market, properties that the city and neighbors deem nuisances or worse can linger unchanged for years. First, though, Peter and I are going to tackle some breaking and pretty big developments in Massachusetts politics, starting with the Supreme Judicial Court's ruling that the so-called millionaire's tax is not fit to be on the ballot this fall. Peter, what do you make of the SJC's ruling? Do you see this one coming? I kind of did. You know, the millionaire's tax is now a zombie ballot question. You know, I have to say that the the court ruled that simply put, the millionaire's tax, the surcharge, the 4% surcharge on family incomes over a million dollars, had too many items in the basket. The basket also included, in addition to the provisions for the tax, what the tax would be spent on. Right. And the court said those are two subjects that aren't related or mutually dependent, right? Correct. They don't go together automatically. It it was good politics to say that we'll spend the money on transportation, A, and B, education, but it was bad constitutional law. And I've got to say that I don't want to rub people's faces in it because the progressive wing of the Democratic Party put their whole heart and soul into this, and they're very sincere. But yikes, if an aging reporter in the WGBH newsroom could scratch his head and say, you know, I don't think this is going to pass constitutional muster— What were they thinking? I think they got carried away with the politics because the politics of this question were very good. The politics were great, and it looked like if this thing had stayed on the ballot, it was probably going to pass. That recent Suffolk U Boston Globe poll showed, I believe, 66 percent of voters in favor of the quote-unquote millionaire's tax. That's right. 26 percent who opposed it. And our colleagues across town at WBUR, their polling showed the, the same thing. This was a, a, a pretty popular measure. Simply put, the Massachusetts electorate appears to be in the mood to tax the rich. However, this is like a, a hand grenade going off in Massachusetts politics. And to my mind, it really calls into question the ability of progressive Democrats to master strategic politics. Peter, I I want to play a little sound from one of those Democrats who was pushing this, or I should say one of the activists who was pushing this, Lou Finfer of the Mass Communities Action Network. He was part of this coalition of liberal groups called Raise Up Massachusetts that was driving the millionaire's tax. He talked to WGBH News right after the SJC's ruling came down. You know, this was four and a half years of work that was done by Raise Up Mass. To, we had to get 157,000 signatures. We had to organize to get the legislature twice to pass it. Um, and we did all that work over four and a half years. And, you know, it's all, you know, it's all down the drain. So there we hear that deep, heartfelt disappointment that you were mentioning. Well, before we get into that, I have to say that Lou Finfer, who I don't think I've ever met, I have spoken to him over the phone uh, occasionally over the years, Lou Finfer did something that was almost impossible. 
when my late mother was alive. I was in my early 20s. I was a young reporter at the Globe. I went to a community demonstration, and lo and behold, there's my mother, along with our neighbor, Mrs. Green, with all the people there shouting, the people united will never be defeated. Get out. Lou Finfer managed to get my very democratic but socially conservative mother out on the street. So I have a lot of respect, and I would say affection for Lou Finfer. What year would this have been? Oh, my God, Adam. That's... Over 40 years ago. Wow. Uh, we got to talk briefly about how this is being spun by uh, the Republicans and the Democrats. I'm going to read just a little bit of what the mass GOP and the mass Democrats sent out after the ruling. The GOP said the following Democrats had already proven themselves incapable of being responsible stewards of our tax dollars with their massive pay raise earlier this session. Now that the SJC has ruled the graduated income tax plan unconstitutional, note the wording there, they're not going with millionaire's tax, they've lost even more credibility. Jay Gonzalez and Bob Massey owe the public an explanation as to which other taxes they intend to raise to pay for the billions they've proposed in new public spending. Now for just a little bit of the Dems, this decision is a crisis for Governor Baker, says the Mass Democratic Party. The court blocked the path to making critical investments in transportation and public education, which is overwhelmingly supported by the legislature and mass voters. What is Governor Baker's plan to repair our crumbling roads, fix our unreliable public transit systems, and invest in our critically underfunded public schools? So if I read that right, the Republicans are saying this is a crisis for the two Democrats who want to be governor. The Dems are saying this is a crisis for the guy who is governor and is seeking re-election. Who comes off better there? Well, everyone's all worked up. I mean, I've got to take a cold shower before I answer this. <laughs> I mean, everyone's a bit overheated. Look, Adam, you and I can remember when we spoke with Gonzalez and Massey several months ago about their plans. I tried like heck to get them to say, no, 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 we have to raise taxes. They wouldn't say it. They fell back on the millionaire's tax. And by I the way, this. that was good politics. The only guy who would say, He'd, he'd contemplate raising taxes was, you tell me. That would be Seti Warren. And who's not in the race anymore? That is Seti Warren. So the Republicans have uh, have touched a sore spot here. It, it's also worth pointing out what they're really reminding people of is that when a Democrat, when Democrats in Massachusetts vote for a Republican for governor, they're largely saying to the Democrats, we don't trust you with our money. And that's what that was all about. Now, switching to the Democrats, who I've just been pretty hard on, the Democrats have a point. This is eventually, not right away, but this is eventually going to force the governor to at least address how do we rebuild the MBTA. Let's forget about schools for a second, which is uh, an even more complicated issue. But the governor has um, uh, hitched a lot of his wagon to the refurbishing, rebuilding, reinventing, rejuvenating, pick the word, the MBTA. Although he's also sort of made the case that that can be done through reform, right, rather than new sources of revenue. Uh, he has, and, and I am someone who believes that reform will go farther than many people think. However, you've got to be smoking a lot of the soon-to-be-legal weed <laughs> to believe that reform alone is going to get the MBTA where it needs to be. So the Democrats are right there. This will, you know, come September, certainly come October, put the governor on the spot. So this would have raised, if it had been on the ballot and had passed, nearly $2 billion a year, which was going to be earmarked for transit and education. 
the sales tax cut, which is proposed and still looks like it could be headed to the ballot, depending on what the legislature does, would, I believe, reduce revenues by about $1.2 billion. So we're looking here at potentially a $3 billion swing in how much money Massachusetts has to spend. Well, listen, when when um, Speaker DeLeo came out of his caucus and talked to reporters today, um, DeLeo didn't say he'd be in favor of a tax increase. He never says that. But he did his um, his little pitter-patter, which said, where he said, look, let's, at the beginning of the next year, take a look at where the revenue projections are, and we'll deal with it then. There is a possibility that Massachusetts will have to raise taxes. Hmm. I mean, but it's not going to be resolved until next year. And by the way, just because the Speaker of the House recognized that possibility does not mean he's in favor of it. it. Listen, they're up in arms. They're, they're, you know, everyone's here. All the Democrats here is on fire up on Beacon Hill right now. There's no doubt about that. One more bit of news that we got to tackle before we move on to our main event. Charlie Baker just announced that he is reversing course and he's not sending a Massachusetts National Guard helicopter and two military analysts down to help the Trump administration with border enforcement because, according to Baker, the Trump administration's current policy of separating migrant parents and children at the border, which is, in fact, contrary to the president's protestations, a policy that his administration put in place, not something he's legally bound to do, is, in Baker's words, cruel and inhumane. What's your take on this? Well, the governor's position on this has evolved, as we say in the political business. Look, when when the Baker administration agreed, I don't know, a month or so ago to send a helicopter and a handful of godsmen, godsmen and women down to the Mexican-Texas border, this policy was on paper, but it wasn't really in effect. This is what a difference a couple of days make. Over the weekend, former First Lady Laura Bush, Cardinal Dolan, a very conservative prelate from Chicago, came out against this. Look, when you've got the ex-president's wife and a conservative Catholic cardinal slamming President Trump's policy, you know it's time to change direction. So it's good politics. The Democrats are going to say, well, he should never have sent it in the first place. I can understand that point of view. Um, I actually think it was a sort of classic Charlie Baker move. Let's do a little something to cooperate, but nothing that's really meaningful. This whole issue raises a, a, a much larger question. By the way, I in no way mean to dismiss how despicable, in my words, the Trump administration's policy is about separating children from their families, which is as a result of criminalizing the very act of seeking political asylum. But it raises an interesting point. We're becoming a nation of cafeteria citizens. Now, some people have heard of cafeteria Catholics, where you sort of pick and choose what doctrines you'll believe in. Well, we're becoming a nation of cafeteria citizens, where let's take the National Guard helicopter. You know, I'm trying to make people uncomfortable. I don't know whether I'll succeed here. Okay, it's wrong to send the helicopter down to... um, 
try to interdict people coming into the country without permission. But is it wrong to send the helicopter down if we're stopping sex traffickers? Is it wrong to send the helicopter down if we're stopping drug smugglers? Opposing the Trump policy is simple. The larger issue about the sort of nation we're becoming is much more complicated. Well, Peter, you and I could go on about this stuff for hours, but as you know, that is not an option because currently we are joined by Jennifer Smith of the Dorchester Reporter and Molly Boygon. Did I get that right, Molly? Yes, I think you it's did. my first time saying your last name <laughs> uh, out loud. Our WGBH News colleague to talk about another topic, which the two of them have both been covering. It's the very strange tale of a rundown, decrepit house at 97 Mount Ida Road in Dorchester, loathed by neighbors. It was actually condemned by the city of Boston years ago, I think 15 years ago, and yet it is still there. Jennifer Smith, Molly Boygon, thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. All right. I would love to just start out by getting the two of you to describe 97 Mount Ida Road. What does it look like? And if there's any other sensory data that would be pertinent, you know, feel free to tell me what it smells like, feels like, anything like that. Well, I think the neighbors might have a better sense of what it smells like after all this time and all of the cat food nearby. But uh, this is the kind of house on the kind of road where you'd think this should just be a normal, classic wooden three-decker. It's overlooking a park, uh, Ronin Park. Um, it's this beautiful street, um, and it should just be a house. Um, But it's, uh, as Molly pointed out, and as people have over the years, it's looking more and more haunted as it goes by. It's lacking its windows. It was gutted by fire years ago. And it's just kind of sagging off of itself at at this point. Um, One thing I loved loved might be the wrong word, in uh, in a report from, from the receiver that's been appointed to it uh, just the other day was he was saying, there are two feet of weeds outside this thing. You basically have to, you know, get a machete and start going through the jungle. There's no way to enter the house. Not only are the front stairs completely burnt out, like Jen said, there's two feet of weeds growing. The windows are completely scorched from mm-hmm. a previous fire, boarded up. There's multiple uh, conde- condemnation signs, all kinds of notices from the city about not entering under a penalty of fine. It, it, and it really sticks out compared to the houses that surround mm-hmm. it, which are pristine. They're like beautiful. Jen said, they're they're, it's right on Ronan Park. I think it's worth noting as well, one thing I've heard from multiple people over the years that I've been covering this is that the owner himself might be coming up and sleeping in it, like removing the boards from the house. Because really? even though it's condemned, technically it's in such bad shape that, you know, fire officials will not go into that house. ISD officials will not go into that house without a special um, a special reason to. And um, because the front steps are burned out, but there's still technically a way to get up to the top floor, uh, numerous people over the years have said that they have seen the owner go back into the house and stay there overnight. I want to ask you more about the owner, James Dickey, mm-hmm. in a little bit. But I see Peter Kadz, who I think is the only Dorchester <laughs> native sitting at, at the... Uh, in the studio with us right now. He wants to get in here. Peter, what well, are you thinking? I hate to spoil this, like, Adams family-like description, but why should any of us care about this house? I have a sneaky suspicion, and I'm, I've got my tongue in my cheek when I said that this house is emblematic of something. Well, th- that was something that I ended up looking at for my story a fair bit because the neighbors that I spoke to, and I, I, I told Jen earlier that I leaned heavily on her paper trail from, <laughs> from the years that she's been covering this, but uh, the neighbors told me that they felt that 
um, and a neighborhood or an area with more money, with more political influence, wouldn't be blighted by a property like this. So I ended up contacting the Department of Neighborhood Development, asking for the most recent data of uh, distressed housing in the city of Boston, which are properties, um, vacant properties that are showing signs of physical disrepair and the rate of, of distressed um, residential buildings in Dorchester is nearly five times that of West Roxbury. So there are 26, right? Yeah, there serves? are 26. Yeah, it's it's something like 39 of them um, is just across the rest of the city. And then between um, Roxbury, Mattapan, and Dorchester, you've got upwards of 50 pushing 60 just in those three neighborhoods. And like the, the city line on this, for instance, um, in talking to uh, the commissioner um, of ISD, uh, is basically... It's not about the neighborhood specifically as much as it is about the density. Like if you look at the population of West Roxbury, the houses aren't as tightly packed and it's about 20 percent the population of Dorchester. So especially when you're talking about three deckers, um, one thing and I'm not sure if this came up for you, Molly, but it gave everyone kind of this weird PTSD last year when there was a fire at a three decker right around the corner at 8 Marie Street. And it's ripped that house apart and scorched the houses on all sides of it. And the first thing that neighbors were saying to me is, please don't become another 97 <laughs> Mount Ida Road. Like this kind of thing is is a blight in the most textbook sense. So given all that, why is it that 18 years after the property was condemned by the city, it's still sitting there in this terrible condition? What is it that keeps the status quo in place? Basically, the owner of the property has taken every possible opportunity to take the city to court when they try and force repairs. His uh, reasons, he, he acts as his own lawyer, and his reasons for um, battling the city over this have, have been a range of things, but usually having to do with that he feels that the city is violating his rights by forcing action on the property. He sued a former tenant for defamation, right? Yeah. Sued a former Back ISD in in inspector yeah. for extortion. In 2010. So why doesn't he just sell, well, given that Dorchester is much more desirable today than it would have been a decade or two ago. Yeah, I mean, for context, by the way, so he's Sudbury-based. Um, this is actually his last remaining property in Boston. They, he had a few others, um, including one um, in Southie, near where I used to live, actually. And the city has slowly and successfully taken all of these properties that he's had that were all in the same condition. It was it was so interesting when I initially started covering this story a few years ago, someone reached out to me in Southie and said, do you know this house three blocks away from you? Have you noticed that it smells like animals in the summer? It's that same guy that you just wrote about. And so the city has slowly turned all of these other Boston properties over to receivers. This is his last one. And uh, as Molly mentioned, he'll he'll file lawsuits in every conceivable court. And if you're talking about a federal case that's ongoing, housing court can't rule. In federal court? Mm -hmm. what, yeah. What, just he, why is that? He files everywhere. That's the thing is it's not actually necessarily based on a logical issue. It's, you know, he's not fighting, you know, a demo permit by the city in housing court alone. He will literally stall it by trying to go up to like superior court. He's seeking and then, every possible type yeah. of legal redress. And to... then the housing court can't do anything with it. And one of the first articles I ever wrote about this in 2015, the judge was already so frustrated with this. She said, and I quote, why the hell would anyone want to buy a house <laughs> next to this and said, even I, who can barely hold a hammer and nails, could probably have rebuilt this house by now. That was in 2015. <laughs> and the, the pictures that we've seen from the receiver's report 
I was shocked mm-hmm. and, and I've been in and around the house for the past couple of weeks. Well, not in the house, but around the house for mm-hmm. the past couple of weeks. I was shocked by the condition of the inside. What is this receiver's report that just came out on the day that we happen to be recording this episode? And what did you see in there? Um, it's basically, you know, now that the property is in, in receivership, the receiver, this, uh, uh, you know, sort of unconnected third party appointed by the it's court. It's a lawyer in Dorchester, yeah. Lawyer in Dorchester has, has the uh, responsibility to enter the house, you know, take notes, uh, write up a report, including recommendations for next actions on the property. Something that I found interesting was that in the report, he said the receiver is unable to make the determination if the house can be saved or Mm -hmm. if it needs to be raised until the house and the yard are cleaned out, each of which he estimated as costing $5,000, so $10,000 total, to clean the first floor of the house and the yard. And a decision about the house won't be made until those two things are done. Do we have any idea what the owner has spent? You said he's... If he acts his own attorney, I, I mean, assume that keeps costs down a little bit, but... Yeah, but the problem is, and, and he's been saying this in court for ages, is when the judges keep asking, dude, why don't you just rebuild this thing? Or why don't you sell it? Why don't you do any of this? Sorry, my California's leaking out there. <laughs> do they really uh, say dude? Uh, no, I, I, in, in intellect colloquialism, my dude. Um, but they basically say, why not just fix it? You're sitting, as as you noted, Adam, you're sitting on a three-decker in prime Dorchester property. The receiver estimated in court today, actually, we, we had a reporter over there, um, that as is, if you sold the property, it should net you half a million dollars. And if you repaired it, and if you were looking to condoize it, you could clear $1.5 million on that house. But the argument he's been making is that he hasn't wanted to make repairs until something to do with insurance kicks in. And it's been very unclear what he's waiting out. Just one more thing from the report that I thought was interesting was that the receiver determined that uh, there's a little over $10,000 owed to the city Back in taxes, uh, yeah. real estate taxes. What well, what strikes me about this is it it's really a case about rights. What are the rights of an individual property holder versus the rights of a neighborhood? Now neighborhoods per se, I guess don't have rights and that's what this case is somewhat all about. Yeah, and I I asked uh, the commissioner of ISD whether this case kind of illustrates a flaw in the system, that somebody could work it to this extent, literally over the course of 15 years. And he said that he, you know, he said that it's the beauty of our system that people have the opportunity to to appeal. I found that answer really interesting (laughs) because, uh, this is Buddy Christopher we're talking about, right? He waxed complimentary about the majesty of the law. And he also, I thought, sounded really peeved that you suggested that maybe this would not fly in some different neighborhood, right? He didn't like that question. He didn't like that question. Well, he's been, he's been hearing it for years, too. I mean, that's the that's the other thing about it. Yeah. Um, and, and one thing that he also points out a lot is that in a lot of ways, the, the quote-unquote beauty of the system also means that the city's kind of at the at the mercy of the particular homeowner. Like when the fire happened just just a few blocks away, the owner of that immediately said, look, I don't want to take this on. I'm going to sell this property. Someone else will fix it up. It's already mostly rebuilt. So um, the same thing that protects property rights uh, can kind of tangle it up a bit. And I don't know if anyone else was paying attention. There was um, a hearing in the city council the other day about vacancies, mm-hmm. about vacancy rates. And Andrea Campbell, who's the council president and the and the D4 city councilor, so she covers a lot of Dorchester, Roxbury, and Mattapan, was saying there's something really odd if we're talking about what we can and cannot do with individual rights in a case like Mount Ida Road, in a case like, um, in a case where there's other similar vacancies, 
but we just regulated short-term rental options. If we're okay oh, telling people whether or not they can rent out individual homes in their rooms, but yet we're talking about, you know, blights on the community that have real financial impacts on the neighborhood, how how can we be kind of two-faced about that? See, I don't know if it's two-faced. It's a good point, and it's a good point, but ownership is, you know, a mighty right. <laughs> Um, what's interesting to me about this is, having been around for a long time, I was surprised to see how few distressed properties there were in the city. Now, I can understand why it seems like there's a lot. I mean, my God, in this market, why anyone wouldn't cash in is beyond me. But the problem 20 years ago used to be a lot worse. Did you get a sense of that, Molly, in your coverage? Or you, Jen? I mean, yes. I would I would say that... Um you know, I guess for a city of Boston size, there are not that high a number of distressed properties. But really what struck me, and I know I said this earlier, was the rate, not the, mm-hmm. you know, because that, that issue of density can be accounted for. When you when you get the number, the total number of residential properties compared to the number of distressed properties per neighborhood, certain neighborhoods have a higher rate than others. Mm-hmm. And that's not due to the density of the neighborhood. That's, that's because for whatever reason, there are problem properties in some neighborhoods that aren't being taken care of by the city that are being taken care of in in other neighborhoods. All right. My final question, Molly, someone you interviewed said if Mayor Marty Walsh were living right next to this or Buddy Christopher, the head of ISD, was living right next to this, there would have been a resolution by now. Uh, I'd love to get your take and Jennifer Smith, your take on Mm -hmm. whether that is correct. I'm torn on this um, because, like I said, the data shows one thing, which is that some neighborhoods, you know, are, are, you know, experiencing a problem with blighted uh, properties that other neighborhoods aren't experiencing. And that largely falls along, you know, Back Bay, Beacon Hill don't have a single distressed residential property. And Dorchester has 26. So I think that there's something to that. Like Buddy Christopher said, this is someone who's taken advantage, good or bad, depending on how you look at it, of the parameters of our legal system. So I would say that that wh- what you said is true. That if the mayor lived next door to that property, it wouldn't be looking like that. But it, it doesn't. It's a, it's a tricky issue. <laughs> All right, Jennifer Smith. What about you? Yeah, I mean, the thing that that really strikes me about this one, and it's funny because I I live in Savin Hill. I live just a few blocks away from the commissioner, and I live a few blocks away from where Marty Walsh used to live. The you know when when the mayor was still um, in Savin Hill. Now he's in Lower Mills, and. Uh, I'm in a three-decker, and there's actually a three-decker next to me that's been kind of a weird property for several years um, that a few neighbors have been concerned about. And, uh, I mean, as long as the owner, again, is saying, I've got a timeline to make repairs, and I'm doing this within within all of my rights, like, Buddy Christopher can't go and physically rip this thing down with his bare hands, and he'd definitely be rightly arrested if he tried. So I think that neighborhood-wise... There's there's more of like an allowance that we give. We kind of accept the idea that some neighborhoods are more likely to have these houses to start with and then the process kicks in. So if they're more likely to have many of them and they can get dragged out for longer, then they remain in higher densities in those neighborhoods, uh, whether or not the mayor lives next door or no. All right. Peter Kansas, last word to you. To me, the, the key to this whole thing is the guy lives in the suburbs. Sudbury. Beyond. <laughs> and he's like, mic drop. <laughs> that's it. He's beyond the reach of the Boston, you know, the Boston law. 
Yeah, and it's his last house. It's the last grasp. The last grasp. He has no relatives in Dorchester. Nothing more need be said. Jennifer Smith from the Dorchester Reporter, Molly Boygan of WGBH News, and my colleague Peter Kadzis, also of WGBH News. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for this episode of The Scrum. As always, thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen. Just a reminder that you should subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't already, either in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can always find us online as well. The address is blogs.wgbh.org slash scrum. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. <laughs>